Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 23 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Vostok 1 with Yuri Gagarin. The final decision of who would fly the Soviet Union's first manned mission relied heavily on the opinion of Nikolai Kamanin, the head of the cosmonaut training. On April 5th, Kamanin wrote in his diary that he was still undecided between Gagarin and Titov. He wrote, The only thing that keeps me from picking Titov is the need to have the stronger person for the one-day flight. Kamanin was referring to the second mission, Vostok 2, which would last a full day compared to the relatively short single-orbit mission of Vostok 1. On April 8, 1961, four days before the launch, 27-year-old Yuri Gagarin was formally selected to make the first flight. Gagarin had been a favorite among the cosmonaut candidates for at least several months. In case Yuri had a problem before launch, a primary and secondary backup was chosen. Titov was the primary, and Yubov was the secondary backup. When Gagarin and Titov were informed of the decision during a meeting on April 9th, Gagarin was very happy and Titov was disappointed. On April 10th, this meeting was reenacted in front of television cameras, so there would be official footage of the event. This included an accepted speech by Gagarin. As an indication of the level of secrecy involved, one of the other cosmonaut candidates, Alexei Leonov, later recalled that he did not know who was chosen for the mission until after the launch. Gagarin was examined by a team of doctors prior to his flight. One doctor gave her recollection of the events. Quote, Gagarin looked more pale than usual. He was unsociable and quiet, which was not like him at all. He would answer by nodding or a short yes to all questions. Sometimes he would start humming some tunes. This was a different Gagarin. We geared him up and hugged, and I said, Yuri, everything will be fine. And he nodded back. The hardware for the mission. Vostok 1 consisted of a Vostok 3KA spacecraft and a Vostok 8K-72K launch vehicle. The technical details of these vehicles were covered in episode 21, so I won't repeat them here. The capsule was sized to carry one cosmonaut. Because of weight constraints, there was no backup retro rocket engine. The spacecraft carried 10 days of provisions to allow for survival and natural decay of the orbit in the event the retro rockets failed. The entire mission was planned to be controlled by either automatic systems or by ground control. This was because medical staff and spacecraft engineers were unsure how a human might react to weightlessness, and therefore it was decided to lock the pilot manual controls. In an unusual move, a code to unlock the controls was placed in an onboard envelope for Gagarin's use in case of emergency, but prior to the flight, Kamanin told Gagarin the code anyway. Unlike future Vostok missions, there was no dedicated tracking ships available to receive signals from the spacecraft. Instead, they relied on the network of ground stations to communicate with the spacecraft. All of these stations were located within the Soviet Union. 
On April 11th, at the Baikonur Cosmodrome, the Vostok 1 rocket was transported several miles to the launch pad in a horizontal position. Once it arrived at the launch pad, Sergei Korolev inspected the rocket and spacecraft for problems, and without finding any, the rocket was raised into the upright position. At 10 a.m. Moscow time, Gagarin and Titov were given a final review of the flight plan. They were informed that the launch was scheduled to occur the following day at 9.07 a.m. Moscow time. This time was chosen so that when the spacecraft started to fly over Africa, which was when the retro rockets would need to fire for re-entry, the solar illumination would be ideal for the orientation system's sensors. At 6 p.m., once various physiological readings had been taken, the doctors instructed the cosmonauts not to discuss the upcoming mission. That evening, Gagarin and Titov relaxed by listening to music, playing pool, and chatting about their childhoods. At 9.50 p.m., both men were offered sleeping pills to ensure a good night's sleep, but they both declined. Physicians had attached sensors to the cosmonauts to monitor their condition throughout the night, and they believed that both had slept well. Gagarin's biographers say that neither Gagarin nor Titov slept that night. Of course, Chief Designer Korolev did not sleep that night either due to anxiety caused by the imminent spaceflight. At 5.30 a.m. Moscow time on the morning of April 12, 1961, both Gagarin and his backup, Titov, were woken. Cosmonauts were given breakfast, assisted into their spacesuits, and then were transported to the launch pad via bus with several doctors. At the launch pad, Gagarin got off the bus and met Korolev, who greeted him with hugs and kisses. Both men boarded the elevator to ride to the top of the rocket. At 7.10 a.m., Gagarin waved by and disappeared behind the hatch. Gagarin then powered up the communication system. Once he was in the Vostok 1 spacecraft, his picture appeared on television screens in the launch control room from an onboard camera. Launch would not occur for another two hours, and during the time Gagarin chatted with mission's main Capcom as well as chief designer Korolev and a few others. Following a series of tests and checks about 45 minutes after Gagarin entered the spacecraft, its hatch was closed. It was soon discovered that the seal was not complete, so technicians spent nearly an hour removing all the screws and sealing the hatch again. A controller asked Yuri if he was getting bored up there. Gagarin in turn requested some music to be played. At ground control, Korolev was very nervous in the lead-up to the launch. He experienced chest pains and took a pill to calm his heart. Gagarin on the other side was described as calm. About half an hour before launch, his pulse was recorded at 64 beats per minute. At 9.07 a.m., launch occurred. Korolev radioed, Preliminary stage, intermediate, main, liftoff. We wish you a good flight. Everything is all right. Gagarin replied, Let's go. Here is how it sounded.
Seventy seconds into the flight. T plus seventy. Korolev said. Seventy seconds after lunch. Gagarin replied. I read you. Seventy. I feel excellent. I'm continuing the flight. The G-load is increasing. All is well. T plus one hundred seconds. Korolev. How do you feel? Gagarin. I feel fine. How about you? <laughs> Korolev. Velocity and time. All normal. T plus 119 seconds. The four strap-on booster sections of the Vostok rocket have used up the last of their propellant. They shut down and drop away from the core vehicle. T plus 150 seconds. Payload shroud covering Vostok 1 is released. This uncovers the window at Gagarin's feet with the optical orientation device, Visor. Gagarin radioed, I see the clouds. The landing site is beautiful. What beauty. How do you read me? Korolev, we read you well. Continue the flight. T plus 300 seconds. The Vostok rocket core stage used up its propellant, shut down, and falls away from the Vostok spacecraft and final rocket stage. The final rocket stage ignites to continue the journey to orbit. T plus 360 seconds. The rocket is firing, pushing Vostok 1 toward orbit. Gagarin reports... The flight is continuing well. I can see the Earth. The visibility is good. I almost see everything. There's a certain amount of space under the cumulus cloud cover. I continue the flight. Everything is good. T plus 420 seconds. The rocket continues to fire, starting to pass over central Russia. Gagarin reports. Everything is working very well. All systems are working. Let's keep going. T plus 480 seconds. Three minutes into the burn of the final rocket stage and Gagarin reports. Zaria 1, Zaria 1, I can't hear you very well. I feel fine. I'm in good spirits. I'm continuing the flight. Vostok 1 was moving further downrange from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Gagarin was reporting back to Zaria, which was the name of the Baikonur ground station, and was starting to move out of radio range at that point. T plus 11 minutes. The Vostok rocket final stage shuts down. Ten seconds later, the spacecraft separates and Vostok 1 reaches orbit. Gagarin reports, The craft is operating normally. I can see Earth in the viewport of the visor. Everything is proceeding as planned. Vostok 1 was now passing over Russia and moving on to Siberia. This is how Gagarin recalled it after the flight. I could see the horizon, the stars, the sky. The sky was completely black-black. The magnitude of the stars and their brightness were a little clearer against the black background. I saw a very pretty horizon and the curvature of the earth. The horizon is a pretty light blue. At the very surface of the earth, a delicate light blue gradually darkens and changes into a violet hue that steadily changes to black. T plus 16 minutes, Vostok 1 passes over the Kamchatka Peninsula and out over the northern Pacific Ocean. Gagarin radios, the lights are on on the descent mode monitor. I'm feeling fine and I'm in good spirits. Cockpit parameters, pressure 1, humidity 65, temperature 20, pressure in compartment 1. T plus 19 minutes, as Vostok 1 begins its diagonal crossing of the Pacific Ocean from Kamchatka peninsula to the southern tip of South America, Gagarin asked, What can you tell me about the flight? What can you tell me? He was requesting information about his orbital parameters. The ground station at Khabarovsk replied back, 
There are no instructions from number 20, and the flight is proceeding normally. Number 20 was Sergei Korolev. Khabarovsk was telling Gagarin that they didn't have his orbital parameters yet because the spacecraft had been in orbit for only six minutes, but all systems were performing well. This is how Gagarin described what he saw over the Pacific. In my flight over the sea, its surface appeared gray and not light blue. The surface was uneven, like sand dunes in photographs. I ate and drank normally. I could eat and drink. I noticed no physiological difficulties. The feeling of weightlessness was somewhat unfamiliar compared with Earth conditions. Here you feel as you were hanging in a horizontal position in straps. T plus 24 minutes. Gagarin transmits to Khabarovsk ground station. I feel splendid. Very well. Very well. Very well. Give me some results on the flight. Vostok 1 was now nearing the VHF radio horizon for Khabarovsk and they responded. Repeat, I can't hear you very well. Gagarin transmitted again. I feel good. Give me your data on the flight. Unfortunately, Vostok 1 passed out of VHF range of Khabarov's ground station and contact was lost. T plus 30 minutes. Vostok 1 continued on his journey as the sun sets over the northern Pacific. Gagarin crosses into night, northwest of the Hawaiian Islands, out of VHF range with the ground stations. Communications now had to be made over the high-frequency radio. T plus 39 minutes. Khabarov's ground station sends the message, KK, via telegraph on the high-frequency radio to Vostok 1. This message meant, report the monitoring of commands. They were asking Gagarin to report when the spacecraft automated descent system had received its instructions from the ground. Gagarin reported back at two minutes later. T plus 41 minutes. Vostok 1 crossed the equator at about 170 degrees west, traveling in a southeast direction, and began crossing the South Pacific. Gagarin transmitted over the HF radio. I'm transmitting the regular report message, 9 hours and 48 minutes Moscow time. The flight is proceeding successfully. Spooksquan is operating normally. The mobile index of the descent mode monitor is moving. Pressure in the cockpit is 1. Humidity 65. Temperature 20. Pressure in the cockpit 1.2. Manual 150. First automatic 155. Second automatic 155. Retro rocket system tanks 320 atmospheres. I feel fine. T plus 42 minutes. Gagarin reports he is on the night side of the earth. T plus 44 minutes. Gagarin reports the sun-seeking attitude control system has been switched on. The sun-seeking attitude control system was used to orient Vostok 1 for retrofire. The automated orientation system consisted of two redundant systems, an automatic-slash-solar orientation system and a manual visual orientation system. Either system could operate the two redundant cold nitrogen gas thrusters, each with 10 kilograms of gas. T plus 46 minutes. The Khabarovsk ground station sends Gagarin the following message via high-frequency radio. By order of number 33, that was General Nikolai Kamanin, the transmitters have been switched on and we are transmitting this. The flight is proceeding as planned and the orbit is as calculated. They're telling Gagarin that Vostok 1 is in a stable orbit. He acknowledged the message. T plus 50 minutes. 
Vostok 1 is now over the South Pacific between New Zealand and Chile when Gergarin sends this message. I'm continuing the flight. I'm over America. I transmitted the telegraph signal. T plus 53 minutes. Vostok 1 crosses the Strait of Magellan at the tip of South America. News of the Vostok 1 mission was broadcast on Radio Moscow. T plus 63 minutes. Passing over the South Atlantic, the sun rises and Vostok 1 is in daylight again. It is now 15 minutes away from retrofire. T plus 75 minutes. Vostok 1's automatic systems brought it into the required attitude for re-entry engine firing and shortly afterwards the engine firing occurred. Gagarin felt the braking rocket kick in with a small buzz and a noise throughout the capsule. This took place over the west coast of Africa near Angola, about 8,000 kilometers from the desired landing point. The retro rockets fired for about 42 seconds. Ten seconds after retro fire, commands were sent to separate the Vostok service module from the re-entry module, but now a serious problem developed. The Vostok service module unexpectedly remained attached to the re-entry module by a bundle of wires. This jeopardized a safe re-entry. Gagarin shut his viewport with a shade, but a bright crimson light still appeared along the edges. Gagarin later recalled, I felt the oscillation of the craft and the burning of the heat shield. It was audibly crackling. Either the structure was crackling or the heat shield was expanding as it was heated. I felt that the temperature was high. T plus 85 minutes, the two halves of the spacecraft began re-entry and went through strong gyrations as Vostok 1 neared Egypt. Gagarin recalled, My head and feet were rotating rapidly. Everything was spinning around. First I would see Africa, then the horizon, then the sky. I only barely managed to hide my eyes from the sun. Finally, the wires broke, the two modules separated, and the descent module settled into the proper re-entry attitude. Gagarin telegraphed, Everything is okay. Then the G-forces began to steadily increase. Gagarin recalled, It felt like it was ten Gs. There was a moment for about two to three seconds when the instruments began to become fuzzy. Everything seemed to go gray. I strained to see, and that helped, as if everything went back in its place. The maximum G-force was actually 8 Gs, but Gagarin remained conscious at all times. T plus 105 minutes. When Vostok 1 was still 7 kilometers from the ground, the hatch of the spacecraft was released, and two seconds later Gagarin was ejected. At 2.5 kilometers altitude, the main chute was deployed from the Vostok spacecraft. Witnesses of the Vostok landing described the scene, quote, it was a huge ball, about two or three meters high. It fell, then it bounced, and then it fell again. There was a huge hole where it hit the first time. Gagarin's parachute opened almost right away, and about ten minutes later he landed. Both he and the spacecraft landed 26 kilometers southwest of Ingalls in the Saratov region. It was 280 kilometers to the west of the planned landing site near Baikonur. A farmer and her daughter observed the strange scene of a figure in a bright orange suit with a large white helmet landing near them by parachute. Gagarin later recalled, 
When they saw me in my spacesuit and the parachute dragging alongside me as I walked, they started to back away in fear. I told them, Don't be afraid. I'm a Soviet citizen like you, who has descended from space, and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. And so ended man's first journey into space, 108 minutes that changed the world. The Soviet press later reported that minutes before boarding the spacecraft, Gagarin made a speech. Here's the speech. Quote, Dear friends, you who are close to me and you whom I do not know, fellow Russians and people of all countries and all continents, in a few minutes a powerful space vehicle will carry me into the distant realm of space. What can I tell you in these last minutes before the launch? My whole life appears to me as one beautiful moment. All that I pre previously lived through and did was lived through and done for the sake of this moment. Here's an audio clip of the Soviet reaction to the flight, as told by Russia Today. This news sped around the world. In the Soviet Union, people flooded onto the streets. At that point, there was hardly anyone on the planet who didn't know the name of the first man to fly to the stars, Yuri Gagarin. Yuri Gagarin was born in 1934 in a Russian village in the Smolensk region. He graduated the Flying Academy and in 1959, in strict secrecy, was recruited into the space program. Out of the first 20 cosmonauts, the choice fell on Yuri Gagarin and German Titov. Everything was taken into consideration, even their looks. Pavel Popovich was among those first 20 star troopers. Yuri had an amazing smile. One couldn't help but laugh with him. It was a smile that charmed the world from the front pages when on the 12th of April in 1961, Gagarin was the first man to reach space. Gagarin quickly became a household name. Everywhere he went, people lined the streets to cheer him. We were afraid for him. At 27, he was world famous. At one table with the movers and shakers of this world. You know, as they say, power or fame is the toughest test for a man, and he passed it. When he was in London, Gagarin was invited to lunch with Queen Elizabeth. There were about a dozen different pieces of silverware on the table. Gagarin admitted to the Queen he had no idea which one was for which dish. The Queen saved the day. I don't always remember all this boring etiquette either, she said. We all love pranks. Gagarin was a natural-born prankster. I remember one time our friend got a new car. All of us were neighbors, and in the morning we all met for exercises. He was so happy with his new car, so Gagarin talked us into hiding it at night. Several of us simply carried it to a garage and locked it there. That cut some splash in the morning, but no one ever held hard feelings against him. In a way, Gagarin became a hostage of the star race between the two superpowers. He was a symbol of Soviet might, and that symbol could not be put at risk. For any pilot, it's a tragedy when he's banned from flying, even if it's due to health problems. And he was 100% healthy and desperate to fly, but they didn't let him, and he kept asking. 
Gagarin was killed in an air crash on the 20th of July in 1969. It was his first flight in eight years. It is still not clear what caused the catastrophe. A bit more than a year after his death, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin left one of Gagarin's medals on the moon as a tribute to the world's first man in space. Officially, the U.S. congratulated the Soviet Union on its accomplishments, but journalist Arthur Kronk, writing for the New York Times, described mixed feelings in the U.S. due to fears of the spaceflight's potential military impl implications for the Cold War. The Detroit Free Press wrote that the people of Washington, London, Paris, and all points between might have been dancing in the streets if it were not for doubts and suspicions about Soviet intentions. Other U.S. writers reported worries that the space flight had won a propaganda victory on behalf of communism. Here is an ABC News report from 1961. I apologize for the quality of this audio clip. It's a little hard to hear. Starrick Day, one of the most unforgettable of our century. The point of departure for man seeking to reach space. And this man, Yuri Gagarin, major in the Soviet Air Force, is the first to cross the frontier into the unknown of space. 27 years old, quasi, handsome, highly trained. Married to a medical student, the father of two girls. Occupation, cosmonaut. The world's first. He has now traveled faster, higher, and farther than any man in the history of this planet. And no other man can yet claim the same occupation or distinction. Tonight, all Russia has gone wild with joy. Delirious crowds in the streets of Moscow, Leningrad, and other cities, hailing the triumph of Soviet science over the West. Russia calls it an unparalleled victory of man over the forces of nature, an immense achievement of science and technology and the triumph of the human mind. And it is indeed all these things. Here's the same reporter interviewing John Glenn. Again, I apologize for the quality of this clip. John, if the Russians get a man up before we do, how would you feel about that? Good question, because we've, we've been asked this many times. Uh, there's only one answer to that. It doesn't change our program one bit. This is uh, like saying that because Henry Ford started a new car first, uh, no one else could be in the automobile business today. The General Motors should have dropped out before they started. Well, this is ridiculous, of course, and it's probably a ridiculous example, but the fact that the Russians uh, happen to get a shot off or may not get a shot off be a little bit before we do, doesn't alter the objectives of our program a bit. Our program is not set up just as a race to space. We're well aware of the international implications of this, but this doesn't alter the step-by-step -step progression that we want our program to go through to see that man safely starts space exploration. We have our goals. I guess they have theirs. And uh, the fact that they do or do not get a shot off ahead of us will not alter the objects of Project Mercury. We're not going to change our plan. Back in Washington, it was Sputnik all over again. It didn't help when a news reporter seeking a response from Shorty Powers, the spokesman for the astronauts, phoned him at 3 o'clock in the morning and woke him up. Powers replied, quote, If you want anything from us, you jerk, the answer is that we are all asleep. End quote. President Kennedy wasn't asleep. But he was upset. He called a press conference on the same afternoon. 
A reporter asked him, Mr. President, a member of Congress said today he was tired of seeing the U.S. second to Russia in the space field. What is the prospect that we will catch up with Russia and perhaps surpass Russia in this field? Kennedy's response was, However tired anybody may be, and no one is more tired than I am, it is a fact that it is going to take some time. The news will be worse before it is better. We are, I hope, going to go in other areas where we can be first, and which will bring perhaps more long-range benefits to mankind. But we are behind. Listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.